encouraging, inspiring, and equipping leaders. This is Coach and Joe. Welcome to Coach and Joe. I'm here with Alan DiDio. I met Alan about, I don't know, six months ago uh, when I received an invitation to, to record a conversation on, on Alan's platform, and we've become friends since then. And Alan's actually coming to, to minister with us here at the Garden Greenville at an event called Fire in the Carolinas coming up here soon in April. Alan, welcome to Coach and Joe. I'm looking forward to having this conversation. Man, it is such an honor. And listen, for those who are tuning in right now, the Holy Ghost has already been moving. Words have already been given. I can't imagine what's next. I just thank you for giving me the privilege of being on here with you. If I could grow a beard like yours, I'd probably have a <laughs> mega church. Is that a fake beard? How do you get that thing so long? Well, I just, I, you just feed it sweet tea in the blood of my enemies. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Alan, uh, tell me, who are you? Who are your wife? Who are your kiddos? What do you do there in North Carolina? Alan DiDio. My wife is Tara. She's the most blessed wife in the land. My children are Evan and Alana, 18 and uh, about to be 13 years of age, and they love the Lord serving God. That's our number one ministry. Our number one priority is our ministry to our family. After that, we have a, we have a great church here locally in North Carolina, but our Encounter Today YouTube channel is where God's really been moving and bringing voices like yours to the, to the nation through that medium. And it's been such a blessing to be able to connect with you and, and other voices like you. Where are you at North Carolina, Alan? We're outside of Charlotte in a small town called Red Cross, North Carolina. How, now, how did you get there? Tell us a little bit about your story. So I was born and raised in the, in this area here. And, uh, I was an atheist. I'd been in jail more times than I'd like to admit by the time wow. I was 17 years of age. And when I was 17, I had a divine encounter that turned my life around in an instant. A few months later, I was up in Columbus, Ohio, going to Bible college, worked with a large ministry there for seven years, and then came to North Carolina to uh, plant our first church. Now, you're not a Buckeye, are you all that time? No, I know. I'm not a Buckeye. You know, I'm not, I'm not a sports guy like you. I'm not a sports guy. I'd rather be watching you know, a, a movie than watching a football game, but you know, it's funny. I run with so many people here in Greenville that aren't sports people. It's God surrounds me with artists. We got a spiritual son, Armando here that runs our Armando's amazing. He had, he couldn't tell you the difference in a football, a basketball, <laughs> but I figured you going to Columbus, Ohio, there had to be some Buckeye, but I'm glad to know there's not any in you. You know, they tried, they tried, but it just didn't work. Alan, I want to jump into a conversation today. I have probably heard I don't know how many teachings, sermons, articles, podcasts <laughs> over the years since I was a kid growing up in the church. I cannot tell you how many things I've listened to people speak on. I can tell you on one hand how many times I've heard anyone teach on the Bema seat of Christ. Uh, I did not grow up under anyone teaching on eschatology. Yeah. I think I've uh, maybe heard someone mention the book of Revelation a couple times from a pulpit. It was, uh, three years ago, this short little student that we had, his name was Jonah. It loves God with all his heart. I called him my, my back pocket prophet Jonah. He walks up to me, he puts <laughs> his finger in my face. He was one of our, our students here in our school. He said, God's going to make you teach on eschatology, which is the study of end times. And I said, Jonah, bless your heart. Uh, that's not me. <laughs> uh, I love the father. I love studying the gospels. I love teaching people how to do the works of Christ. I don't really care about the end times. I'm going to tell you what, Alan, from the moment that word came out of that kid's mouth, 
till now, even an hour before this recording, I have been in like a dialogue with God on end times. Hmm. Now, one of the conversations I had with you, I think it was actually in this studio. I, I mean, we briefly talked about it. So let me ask you this. Why do more people, maybe it's just because we want to put our head in our sand. We don't want to think about it. Why do more people or why do more leaders in God's kingdom not talk about the end times more than we do when the Bible does? Well, I think what a, what a great question. I think number one, it is fulfillment, fulfillment of Bible prophecy. First Peter chapter three says, for in the last days, scoffers will come saying, where is the promise of his coming? So number one, the Bible says in the last days, there's going to come a generation doesn't want anything to do with the conversation. They don't want to talk about it. Therefore, it's going to become tremendously controversial. So it's, it's been interesting to me. And as an atheist who came out of, out of my background, my way of thinking into the church, I was very skeptical about eschatology, especially urgent eschatology as it's taught. Well, every generation has thought that was my, that was my response. Every generation thought that a generation and the response the Holy spirit gave me was that's right, except yours. And that is the fulfillment of the Bible prophets. Now, now in combination with that, it is intimidating because there's so many dissecting views about this subject you don't want to offend your audience or close yep. doors to donors, but I'm thankful there's some ministers like yourself who are saying, you know what? I'm going to do what the Holy ghost says do. I'm going to talk about what he says, talk about, uh, you know, it catches me off guard about the Bible a lot, how much Jesus Christ talked about money oh. and how much is in the word on eschatology. Yeah. It's all over the place. And I think too, to answer my own question, let's be honest, let's be objective. It is a pretty big concept to think that we will leave our bodies one day, stand before God, what's out there in the afterlife. Like I I get it. Sometimes you just want to be like, man, that's a little overwhelming. However, you stand on that logos. And at some point I felt like the Holy spirit began to ask me, why are you ignoring and not paying attention to what is so right in front of you came from the mouth of, of, uh, one of our students. And I said, all right, here's what I'm excited about. Alan the more I fall in love with the father, instead of it scaring me, what he's showing me is exciting me. Yes. Now the number two leadership book in the history of the world in terms of sales behind good to great by Jim Collins is a book called the seven habits of highly effective people by Stephen Covey. Stephen Covey was a Mormon. Have you ever read that book? Yes. It's great. The first principle is great. Be proactive, but there's another concept he talks about in this book. And that is begin with the end in mind. Mm Mm-hmm. Most people don't do that. And so right now, my wife and I, about six months ago, we started a business called NARS Hospitality, and I'm finding this new apostolic visionary thing coming on me. And it's like the early days of planning ministry. I'm like, okay, I get to do this again. Let me just start with the end in mind. Let me see the last day I'm on the earth. What legacy do I want to do? I want to leave. And as I begin a business in real estate, I'm actually just through experience and learning as a 50 year old, I know that the best way to do that is go ahead and start at the end. Here's what I think is great about Covey, even though he's Mormon, that principle is found in scripture. Yes. If you study all the Kings, it's a little bit depressing because hardly any of them finish. Well, why don't we just go ahead? You and me, why don't I read Hebrews six, one through two, and let's just start with the end in mind because Mm. Whether I'm an ostrich with my head in the sand or not, this passage is true, no matter if I want to think about it or not. 
That's right. So we, we might as well want to go ahead and start there. And it goes like this. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again, the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. All right. I want to hear from your perspective for me living every day with the judgment seat of Christ. When I say yes. every day, I mean, every day Yes. with it being on my frontal lobe, not only does it not scare me, it gives me an energy, a passion, a focus, a purpose. What do you think the benefits are for one of God's kids beginning or even starting with the end in mind? Why does it help? One of the greatest keys to look at in understanding this is to look at the life of the Apostle Paul. And we, we marvel at what he was able to endure and what he was able to accomplish, the cities he was able to turn upside down, stoned, beaten, left for dead, shipwrecked, snake bitten, and he just keeps on going. He just keeps on moving. And we marvel at that and we say, Paul, how? How do you press on? How do you pursue? How do you accomplish everything that you've accomplished? And he gives us a key and he says, I believe it is in second Corinthians chapter three, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, I persuade men. So his, his persuasive evangelism is attributed to an end time event that he labels the terror. Now that's really interesting. When we talk about eschatology, people have all the different events they want to talk about. They want to talk about, you know, the, the seven-year peace treaty. They want to talk about the breaking of the treaty, the mark of the beast, uh, all these different things. No one ever mentions the end-time event called the terror. And if you look the verse in front of it, he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for every word we've spoken, every deed we've done. So the key to the Apostle Paul's success, how he was able to press through, how he was able to endure everything that he endured was because he was looking forward to a moment when he was going to have to stand before Jesus and yep. give an account. And I think that's what wisdom really is. Wisdom is making every decision in light of the judgment seat of Christ. And that's the key for Christian success. And I I'm, you know this, and I'm sure your audience knows this, but there's no unbeliever at the judgment seat of Christ. These are believers standing there mm -hmm. receiving their rewards or not receiving the rewards they should have received. I tell you what, Paul even says full reward. So if he's saying full reward, that means there's such thing as partial reward. Yes. Let's talk about two judgments here. One's for unbelievers. Biblically, I know we don't have time to jump into it. You're getting into the great white throne judgment. For believers, you're talking about the Bema seat. I believe most of the battle for guys like you and me, as we lead others into this is the difference in ignorance and stupidity. Hmm. I believe much of the church, it's not a stupidity issue. It's an ignorance issue. I can't tell you how many times that I talk about this where someone will say, I didn't know that it's not that someone knows it and ignores it. It's just like an ignorance of, ah, it's like this Hosea four, six, my people die from lack of knowledge. Oh, oh I didn't know that. I think most of this battle is just shining a light on the issue. So many of these younger people that we lead around here at the garden Greenville, they'll say, I didn't even know there was such thing as the beam of seat of Christ, the reward seat of Christ. What's happening is culture is drifting further and further and further away from even reading the Bible. And 
when you and me were growing up, I'm a little bit older than you. When I was growing up, it was seen as, ah, oh, you're a fundamentalist if you keep thumping the Bible. All we have to do is bring that logos out. And in a culture that is drifting further and further and further away from the Father, that logos is not drifting. It actually is all in there. I'm not trying to sound like one of those old school guys, but there is so much truth. It's not to scare us, but it is to sober us. Yeah. And so there's a couple of issues here. If someone, I remember, I think it was on stage a couple of weeks ago. I said, when's the last time you heard anyone preach on hell or mm. judgment? Yeah. If someone dies and they're not in Christ, whether or not that person knows it or not, you're going to stand at the great white throne judgment. You don't want to go there. No. Hell is real. Yes. Heaven is real. I don't want to talk about the great white throne judgment today. I want to talk about this word Bema, Alan. Okay. Paul, Paul uses language and you, you, we were laughing earlier. You're not a, a, an athletic guy. He uses a lot of athletic language in the Greek. Yes, he does. So there were Greek, Greek games. I can't pronounce the word. I want to say Athenium. Don't quote me on that, but there were, there were games back then. Back then you didn't have a lot of the games you do now. A lot of it was wrestling, uh, sprinting, long distance running. Paul used a lot of racing words and he would say things like this, run your race as to not lose the crown. I'm like, wait, what are you talking about? Not hmm. lose the crown. Crowns are symbolic of rewards biblically. Yes. Here's the awesome news. And I just put this in a book I wrote recently with destiny. God is shaking his temple. The judgment seat of Christ. That's actually, a, that's not a good word in the Greek there. It's the reward seat of Christ. Hmm. A lot of people don't understand, Alan, that your sins are not in play at the judgment seat of Christ. It's what you've done with your life, with the assignment the Lord Jesus gave you when you came in Christ. Let me say one more thing, and I'm going to ask you a question. 189 times the apostle says in Christ. Hmm. So that's a lot. New Testament short. He said it 189 times. Righteousness is my ability to stand in the presence of the Father free of condemnation. I'm yes. clean. Colossians 1, 21, 22. I'm not talking about that. Here's the ignorance that God is moving people out of and into truth. Alan DiDio, Chad Norris will stand before the Lord and be held accountable and rewarded. Not on me becoming righteous because of the blood of Christ. Uh-uh. I'm not talking about a works-based theology here, but there's a reason. There is a reason that Luther wanted James ripped out of the Bible because when you read James, it seems to point that what I do with my life matters. Mm -hmm. What if, Alan, life down here is an internship and the way <laughs> that I am stewarding what he's given me plays into my role in the afterlife? Your thoughts? No, it's so good. And what you're saying is so important because people will hear that. And their first reaction is, you know, I'm not having to give an account for my sins. No, no, no. Have you ever, have you ever been in the moment with someone you loved and respected? And they looked at you and said, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. And that's like the most devastating thing someone can say to you. I'm not saying that God's going to be disappointed to you. What I'm, what I am saying is when you, we stand before God in eternity and we see our life as it could have been versus what we made of it. I think there's a translation that speaks that, that says we will come screaming through the fire when Paul lays out 
he lays out the wood, hay, stubble. Yep. And those, these are all the things we did for Christ and the reasons why we did them. What was our motive? Is it gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, stubble? And in that day, you may not be dealing with quote unquote sin and worried about whether or not you're going to hell. You're going to be faced with everything he did for you, everything he provided you, how much he loved you, and then what, how we squandered it. That's not going to be the most joyous moment of our lives. I'm 50 years old. I just had a friend of mine, 72, pass away, and I went to his funeral Sunday. I told my wife, besides my grandmother's funeral and my wife's grandmother's funeral, it is the most fun I have ever had at a funeral celebrating someone's life. Alan, you got teenagers. When you're a teenager and you go to someone like Frank's funeral that I went to, you think it's a million years away. Hmm. I'm at that funeral going, Lord, even if I live to be a hundred, I am so close to being out of my body. James wow. says life is a mist. Here's why I think the Covey thing matters. If you begin with the end in mind, maybe a lot of the stuff we go through, maybe it's light and momentary affliction. If you can have the awareness, the revelation that yes, I'm loved and I'm cherished and I'm his kid. But you're telling me how I steward my life here determines a lot of what I steward up there. I will never forget when the Lord told me, he gave me revelation on that. Uh, one of the things he said about, um, rulership over cities. And I was just reading something one day. Um, I'm trying to think of the past. I was actually studying about money. I was studying about taking a little bit and, and how to invest it. And he was just showing me some stuff. But he also, he also said, Chad, how you steward your life here. He told me what, what the way it works is when you are trusted by the father, that your eternal assignment is not predetermined. The father hmm. drafts off of our obedience to our assignments on the earth. To me, that excites me because wait a minute, you're saying that I have a say so. Yeah. There's hope. Are you kidding me? And guess what? Give me an atheist that went to prison who finishes well and comes to Christ over someone that does nothing with their life after they've given it to Christ. Yes. It's the Luke Luke 16. If you'll be faithful with unrighteous mammon, I'll make you ruler over much. It's Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. And it's interesting what one of those, one of those holders of the talent said, he said, Lord, the reason why I invested this and I multiplied it or, or, or I didn't, the reason why I didn't is because I knew now listen to this revelation of Jesus. I knew you were a hard man who reaps where he doesn't sow. And I was afraid. So I hid it. Now there's a, there's a truth to that. He is a hard man and he does expect to reap where he did not sow, but he empowers us. He ingratiates us to partake in his ability to increase and to multiply so that we, when we give, when we speak, when we minister, he doesn't just look at the little might that we did. If we do it with the right motive, he'll increase it and multiply it. So it's not wood, hay, and stubble. It's gold, silver, and precious stones. For two people like you and me, we're held more accountable than anyone we're ministering to. James says, be careful before you become a teacher. Yes. So this is the sobriety. Listen, you and me mm -hmm. being passionate about this conversation. Hey, am I scared? No, I'm not scared, but I'm sober. 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 You're, you're dadgum right. I'm sober. I have in know, my office, Pastor, right now, the Rembrandt's painting of the blinding of Samson. Right next to that, I have another framed picture of uh, the newspaper on 9-12-2001, because those two things 
remind me to remain sober. There's a lot at stake and there's something to be said about sobriety. I feel convicted. I have a painting of Georgia winning the national championship over Alabama. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there's something prophetic to that. No, that's, um, that's really good. Alan, you know what I tell the father a lot? He told me something. I'm sure he's told you the same thing. He said, the closer you get in friendship to me, the more accountable, more accountable I hold you. Yeah. But, but you know what I told him? And my wife feels the same way. Father, come prune me, pound on me, elevate me, demote me. I don't care what you do. I just want to know you and your truth. I, here's one of my fears. I don't care if what God shows me costs me everything. I just don't want to think I know him and I'm actually in ignorance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so here's what I did. I'm being facetious, but I did this. I started carving up the new Testament for myself. I tell people all the time, dumbest thing I ever did ruin my life. is I started reading the Bible and this, <laughs> I just noticed I wasn't reading it to, to preach it. I just noticed, man, Paul is using a lot of words that even redefine what I would call the salvific story of God. For example, yes, I grew up with this. Who in here believes that Jesus Christ died on the cross? Okay. You don't want to go to hell when you die. Okay. True statement. I get it. Paul talks about work out your salvation with fear and trembling, run your race as not to lose the prize. Well, what the heck's the prize? Don't lose the crown finish. Well, I have run the race. I finished what he had for me. This conversation on eschatology seems to point again. I'm not trying to get in a theological argument here. We've turned salvation story into praying a prayer. The Bible paints a different picture. It is following him, following through with him, going the distance with him. Alan, he woke me up one night in the middle of the night, four or five years ago. I audibly heard the Lord yell my name twice, Chad, Chad. And I was in that sleep state where I was awake, but I couldn't open my eyes. He said, millions of people in my church in America are not regenerated and they think they are warn them. And I, I try to make myself wake up and I couldn't wake up. I believe Alan, that the father's showing me right now, he's actually raising you as a watchman in this hour. Uh, and at the age of 41 years old, you're going to be given more at 41 than a lot of people are given at 61 because he trusts you. Alan, true fathers warn warning, warning people is not because you're trying to be old school and you're trying to be mean. We got so many slick teachers out here that want to be great orders. Where are the fathers that will warn a generation stop going down this path? What's the father been showing you about what the true role of a spiritual father is? Well, fathers, there's a difference between a father and a teacher. Teachers will do anything to keep your attention. Fathers demand your attention. There's a difference between a coach and a cheerleader. Cheerleaders celebrate what you do right. Coaches focus on what you did wrong. And if I can say this, I don't know what our time frame looks like on this podcast. It may, it may have been two years ago. I was in prayer. What, what is the time frame, by the way, before I'm not, not that I'm hey, going to brother, I'm laid back. You get, you take as much time as you want. So I was in prayer. We were in, we were in an intense spiritual battle and the spirit of God said, tell the church, the helmet is the key. The helmet of salvation is the key. And I began to research that pastor, and I began to realize that Paul taught on the helmet of salvation 10 years before he ever mentioned it in Ephesians chapter 6. 
And it's been kind of a mystery to me. And I think for a lot of believers, how, what, what is the helmet of salvation? He's talking to believers, are the believers taking off their salvation, putting their salvation back on. Well, if you look in first Thessalonians chapter five, he's talking about the last days. He's talking about the resurrection at the end. He's talking about watching and being prepared. And he says, I want you to put on your head, the helmet of the hope of salvation. He's referring to the Titus two thirteen, blessed hope of his return, his imminent coming. And he says, many people are going into battle unarmed because they are unprepared for my return. And I think there's got to be, if we're going to father this thing, especially within the charismatic prophecy camp, there are a lot of people who are really deep into charismatic prophecy, but they don't know much about end time prophecy. Yes. And then there are people who end time prophecy who don't know anything about charismatic prophecy. Yeah. We've got to bring those two together and get people armed with the helmet of this eschatological understanding. Yes, because in the end, you know, what's driving this God, mm -hmm. the, the, the father's one driving this. And here's what I love about it. It's nothing new. He's driving us back to the word. Yeah. Uh, where was I a few weeks ago? I just heard so loud in my spirit, the revival of the Bible, the revival mm. of the Bible. Listen, if, if you just take that book and carve it up yourself, not in some religious way, just go read it. What you just said is not a foreign concept. It's actually central. Yes. I really enjoyed having you on the show today. Alan, how can people connect with you and your ministry? Encountertoday.com is the best way they can reach out to us. In fact, we have some great resources about the armor of God and particularly this subject on there that they might find to be a blessing to them. Encountertoday.com. Awesome. Check Alan DeDio out. Thanks for joining us today. Spread this podcast to as many leaders as you know that may help them in the marketplace, maybe church leadership. Coach and Joe's a podcast designed to help leaders lead. Leadership is hard. If it was easy, everybody would do it, would be doing it. Being a, a father and mother is hard, but maybe you'll, you'll find that uh, Coach and Joe podcast is one of those that just helps you elevate your game as a leader. God bless you. Until next time, we'll see you later. Thanks for joining us on the Coach and Joe Leadership Podcast. Don't miss the Coach and Joe Talk Show on YouTube and check out coachandjoe.com for more resources, blogs, and merch. We will see you next time.